0: Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia.
1: On episode 58, I speak with Sean Cook, co-founder and director of Neolink. We discuss how he wanted to be a professional athlete, following in the footsteps of his father who played 500 games in the Premier League, how he moved into data insights and analytics with fast-moving consumer goods brands after his dad told him to stop and pursue a normal career path, why he left the job he loved managing beer brands at Lyon to start his own logistics company despite not having industry experience, using people and culture as their competitive advantage, combined with technology, to grow 91% last financial year and do over $24 million in annual revenue, becoming one of the fastest-growing new businesses in Australia. If you're looking for a global partner for hassle-free freight forwarding, customs brokerage and transport by sea, air and land, check out neolinkoz.com. A-U-S dot com. So I'm here with Sean Cook, the co-founder and director of Neuralink. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. Really appreciate it, Derek. Yeah, you're welcome. So can you start by telling us what were you doing before you started Neuralink? What did you study? What type of
0: companies or roles were you working in? So I, uh, so basically after school, I, um, I basically went and tried to sort of go play soccer or football overseas. Um, and did it, and uh, probably definitely uh, didn't make it to the the heights of the Premier League that I probably would have liked to. But um, I went overseas and uh, started, and then basically after football sort of didn't work out. I actually went and worked for um, a football club, and went and worked for Norwich City Football Club in in the UK in sort of their PR team, and and then I ended up uh, working, ended up eventually sort of working in. Uh, market research for a UK business called called Data Monitor. Um, before I moved back to Australia, and I sort of got into into sort of fast moving consumer goods, and working as sort of an account director, looking after a range of sort of different um, range of different fast moving consumer business fast moving consumer goods businesses in Australia, and um, and I went from sort of there and and worked for. Uh, a company called Nielsen, which I'm sure you, you probably would have heard of all the television ratings. But the, I sort of looked. I actually worked in a in a department um, that actually looked after all of the shopper and scan data, and that role become a lot more analytical than probably what I expected, and um, so it, it become sort of less about just customer interfacing. And I actually ended up sort of being on site with some fairly uh, sort of big, fast moving consumer businesses like uh, Record Ben and then, sort of Ferrero. And later on, sort of Colgate, Palmolive, and it become a lot more of a, a consulting role around sort of working with those different those different type of companies. So that that was kind of sort of my my sort of early sort of forte, if you like, going into a going into sort of my work career. And um, and then I, I really enjoyed that. I, I found I was actually quite good at it. And um, I was quite good at sort of telling stories with data and, you know, sort of analyzing sort of different opportunities for, you know, whether it was customer strategy meetings with Coles and Woolworths. I sort of found that I was actually, I enjoyed it a lot and um, felt like I was adding a fair amount of value. And then one of my customers um, contacts who was uh, one of the head of shoppers at Colgate moved to Lion, who are a beer business and, um, and, Reached out to me and said, "Did you want to come work for Lion?" So I actually then went and worked in the uh, in the beer industry before starting starting Neolink. and uh, that was actually a lot of fun, like working working in, in beer. You'd think, a, a, you know, fairly young in my in my sort of twenties, um, late twenties. That was that was awesome. And when before I started the business, I actually took my business partner and co-found, co-founder and director, Chris. He's a mate of mine I've known for years, and we we went. I took him into the into the uh, into the office at Level Seven in York Street in Sydney, and they had a bar there, and it was a Friday night, and it just was pumping, great activity, and um, and he just turned to me and just said, "Are you sure you really want to start? Leave this place." <laughs> <laughs> so it was a uh, no. That was kind of those type of roles and organisations, but I, I really enjoyed working in the beer space. I went from sort of doing working in sort of insights within sort of the sales part of the business, working with the retailers to then actually completely going into a different space and working as a marketing manager, looking after um, the Kieran beer product and five seeds in the cider portfolio for for Lion. And um, that was actually probably the best thing that sort of probably happened to me because it sort of opened up, it got me out of sort of the insights bubble and got me more familiar with business operations and executing sort of a brand launch and things like that. So... But I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun doing that before before we started the business.
1: And so, a lot of um, kids who are, you know, early teens, they want to be athletes. They they watch sport, they play sport, but obviously, most never sort of attempt it. I, I mean, how long did you sort of pursue the professional sport pathway? Is it a, a hard stop? Like you kind of get, um, is it drafted? Is the right word or selected or, or pre selected? And, and you pretty quickly know whether or not you, you're going to make it, or or how do you sort of decide how long to pursue? Sort of professional sport.
0: I was pretty lucky. I mean, my my dad my dad uh, had a he played he played for England. and He played in the Premier League. He played over sort of five hundred games in the Premier League. And we moved to Australia in the late nineties after he finished his career in Japan. He's had a very good sort of coaching career here. But I've been around professional sports since I was born. So I think it was just sort of from the moment I was sort of probably old it was you know i kick kick, you know kicking a ball around in the back garden I always kind of probably had these delusions of oh that's just what you do you you know you you become old and you and you you eventually start playing professional sports and I think it was uh, and my parents were really good at sort of encouraging it and um, I learned a lot from playing sport and but I think it got to the point I remember calling my dad actually when I was in the UK and I had a I had a trial with a team who were sort of a league two team in the England. So that's about fourth or fifth division. And I remember calling him and they asked me to stay and potentially sort of sign a one year deal. And I remember speaking to my dad and my dad had transitioned out of playing and going into coaching. And my dad said to me, he goes, you could probably have a career. He goes, but you're going to be, he goes 33, 34, you're going to have injuries. He goes, it's, what are you going to do when you head to 34, 35? Because you've got a lot of other opportunities in front of you. And I think he he probably put it on me a little bit after that to kind of say, look, it's going to be hard for you to go and really earn the money that you can to set yourself up for the rest of your life. Do you really want to kind of, you know, go and push and pursue this now? And so I think he, he never ever did that beforehand, but I think he pulled me up at the right time. And it kind of got me really thinking about my life at 19 around, right, this is going to probably not be something that's going to work out for me and it was a very hard finish that I've got to I've got to move on and and start thinking about other things and I didn't really I didn't really look back until probably probably actually only only probably about a year ago since I started or a couple of years ago since I started having my own kids and thinking about how I would have managed how I'd manage that conversation with my own children and it was yeah it was a good it was a good thing
1: did part of you want to sort of prove him wrong or say no 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 you don't know what I'm capable of or you know it's a different generation or you know I can make it or or you know if I don't try now I can never try whereas you can always go back to a desk job um or again did you just trust his sort of advice and expertise and you know um i i think if he
0: i think if he said i wasn't good enough i think then yeah that kind of straight away gets you you know your confidence you know, you feel like, you know, I can, I can, I know I could play, I know I could compete at that level or at a decent level. And, but for him to sort of kind of say to me, look, fast forward 10, 15 years, it really got me thinking long-term. And um, I just met my wife, actually, my future wife. Mm. Um, And it got me thinking uh, really and seeing the, seeing the, you know, there wasn't a lot of people that sort of transitioned well from professional sport into coaching. And my dad had a very fortunate transition from, you know, having a professional football career to having a, a good professional coaching career. And I I, I saw that there was a, a lot of players that my dad was around that either, you know, went broke or, or, you know, very few of them went into coaching. Very few of them got into sort of, you know, TV and things like that. And some of them were working in the mines. Some were working um, other jobs. So I got to see sort of also probably the negative side of it later on down the line that it was going to be, all it took was going to be one injury. And did I want to, and look, probably... If I sit here now, I probably wasn't quite good enough to probably get to the level where I probably would have lied to. And it, it, was pro- it was a smart decision to, I think, move on and focus on other things.
1: Yeah. And so when you're a teenager, obviously growing up in a sport family, loving sport, was the marketing PR, which ended up being your first sort of job, was that something that was a bit of a passion or, again, literally just something that you fell into or a friend or cousin or someone sort of recruited you into just because they needed entry-level people or or how did that
0: first sort of job come about?
1: it sounds like the weirdest
0: thing, but like my obsession was just like, okay, I've got to put a suit on and go to work. And I was, I had, I, I sort of uh, had the option of coming back to Australia and going, going to uni and um, but I had the opportunity to go into the football club and I was fortunate because this is where my dad used to play. And so I did get a, get a foot in the door. Um, But then, you know, the door was open, but then I had to sort of obviously do what I needed to do. And I found that I was, you know, pretty comfortable sort of being in that environment and uh, learning new things and asking loads of questions and being very inquisitive and wanting to sort of get ahead and and I kind of had the sport mentality sort of I think focused to 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 my business life if you like and career and I just said yes to everything and I think that was a that was probably a a benefit to me is that I kind of treated it in a in sort of more of a I guess a sports mindset that okay I'm just going to say yes to everything and take every opportunity that comes in front of me and and then I'll learn a lot, kind of almost say yes and learn learn along the way type approach.
1: Mm. And then you found yourself in like a very, like you said, the quantitative data, insights, analytics, yep. very metric driven, uh, fast moving consumer goods. I mean, did that suit you and your, your skills and your temperament? Or again, that's just kind of where the opportunities went, but really your heart was more, like you said, in more the other sides of the marketing and consulting and strategy that you later found yourself in.
0: No, I, I think I I love the idea. I think of always I did like the idea sort of for my long term sort of career goal. At that time, my 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 sort of obsession was to sort of end up in a in an insights manager role at effectively at a at a big FMCG business, and that was my goal. And I I kind of thought that you know it's going to be hard for me to get in there. I don't have a degree, but I've landed on my own. You know. Landed on two feet working in a business like Nielsen. And I was learning so much and working with some really great people. And um, and I was quite fortunate that uh, that I, but I knew that I was going to have to sort of go work within sort of the agency side before I got my foot in the door at a business like that. And um, yeah, as I said, it was really confronting. I didn't realize there was that. I felt like I was really good at engaging with customers, really good at engaging on the account management and sales side but needed to learn a hell of a, a hell of a lot when I when I walked in there and working with a lot of the analysts because a lot of it I didn't realize when I walked in the door. It was actually no, 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 you've actually got to do all the analytics. You've actually got to go through the database, you've got to run the reports, you've actually got to do all this. And I kind of I, I, I kind of blagged my not blagged my way through the interview, but I had a whole bunch of interviews, but I, I found that I was really good once I had the data and I could present the opportunity. but then actually doing all the analytics and doing the deep diving on the data. That was a real learning process. And it took me probably a good 18 months um, before I got comfortable with that. And then I found that I was actually, you know, I was actually finding so I was actually quite good at being able to commercialize the the insights and and be able to present them in a pretty clear way for sales and marketing people at at whether it was a Colgate or whoever it might be. And um and that's the part I enjoyed the most was actually going and presenting It took giving the market updates, looking at opportunities that was happening with the retailers or how effective their promotions were. And that's what really got me, I found got me out of bed and got me excited.
1: Yeah, and were there some interesting learnings as well, being on both sides, working with Nielsen who have like a lot more scan data and actual point of sale data versus a lot of the brands that struggle to know how much they're actually selling in a day or a week because, you know, it pushes through the retailers and they're not direct to consumer businesses. Were there some interesting lessons and insights being on
0: both sides of that? Yeah, I think, I, I think so. I think that, you know, you have to be able to, really gets the point very quickly i think the one thing i learned at nielsen was, was that we spent so much time diving into a variety of different reports and running different analytical reports in different ways and and really when you're working at a company like a, a, a lion especially or a colgate palmolive you've got a meeting with a retailer you know getting on the plane on the red eye from sydney down to Torak and i've got one slide to land in 30 seconds with a buyer with our team on a joint business plan that needs to land the message that we need to think more about you know this is how this promotional ac- execution was effective or not effective and you you just didn't have the <clears throat> part of me the time that you think that you had on the agency side so i became you know you had to become quite effective in what you were doing in in the role in the insights manager role i, I had a, a lion you had to be really close with the sales guys and the and the, the rest of the business whether it was coles or Woolworths and just be really across what was happening in the customer landscape as much as you possibly could to just be as targeted as you could with the work that you were doing. And it was, yeah, very, very different.
1: And so you're saying you're having the time of of your life at at Lion, having a lot of fun, really enjoying it. You've had this very interesting career adapting to different areas. What made you want to um, start your own business? Did you run any little side businesses or sort of um, other ventures before then? Did a certain event trigger the sudden decision to say, you know, with your business partner and friend, hey, let's do our own thing? And then what was it like, you know, once
0: you actually did start? So we no so I no nothing ran nothing on the side and I, I thought I would probably be I guess go go through the corporate sort of world and you know work in that space and I I didn't I didn't see myself probably at that stage opening up a opening up a business at all and I was actually doing my MBA at MGSM um, you know a couple of nights a week whilst I was working at, at Lion and um, and uh, just doing a range of different case studies learning about different businesses and. Uh, in in combination with that, that was a really eye-opening experience for me that got me thinking about a lot of the people challenges we're going to go through with technology over the course of the next, you know, over the course of the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And then I I the, the key trigger for me was I was actually my business partner now, who's my best mate, and I've known him since high school. He was always going to start his own business and he worked for DHL and worked um worked for the iconic and worked for one of the largest sort of privately held Australian freight forwarders. And I was launching. um, I was actually relaunching Kieran um, in twenty in twenty sixteen, and we were bringing in a range of different equipment materials for for the launch, and everything was running behind. Production was running behind. Our decision making was really running behind on approvals for everything from you can think of from bar mats to you know samurai swords that we were doing with the with the launch, and um, and we had literally a bunch of containers. That were just we were we were just running behind to the point where we we're going to have to delay um, you know millions of dollars worth of launch uh, materials with different customers and my business partner through the whole process we're having beers in his back garden and I was talking about what was going on and and just saying how can all of these massive large multinational freight forwarders not know what's happening? Well, where's where's my shipments? What's happening with all of the different you know? No one could kind of give us clear straight answers on what was happening and and why and and. Yeah, he taught me through really the entire process, how these companies work. And it was explained to me that literally Manila folders go from one department to the next. And I'm like, this is 2015. Like how on earth are literally folders going from different departments to the next? And this is massive multinational businesses. And so I started to think there was a real opportunity there when I understood, um, you know, the technology aspect, the people aspect of how what, what was going to happen, I think, with people. So... It then took us sort of a year of really planning and we had we were very f- been very fortunate to have some really fantastic sort of business mentors that we were pitching the our business plans to. it was getting reject you know get rejected and get rejected and get rejected nah it's not here you need to think about this and so we yeah so that that kind of really kind of spurred it on and through the whole year that we were sort of developing the business plan, I was speaking to my wife and I kind of felt like I'm going to treat this like a business project, and if it, and like a piece of analytic with, or uh, you know, an actual you know business project. And if it didn't, if I felt at any point in time that it wasn't a real opportunity that I thought it was, I'd, I'd back out. Back out, and yeah, still here five, six years later. So.
1: And so, like you say, you, you did a lot of planning, like you didn't just jump in and get angry and quit your job. You're quite methodical planning. You've known your business partner. But then once you actually were full-time on the business, what was that first 12 months like? Both the the good and the bad?
0: Um, it it was it was yeah, it was quite interesting because we quit our when we quit our jobs. The one thing that my my business partner quit his job and then my boss was actually away <laughs> for, for a couple of days. So he thought I was backing out. And, um, but I resigned then a few days later, but his, my business partner, his his wife, he was, was giving birth. I sold, sold our house. My wife got pregnant. She was working full-time doing a degree. I was living, we were living with my parents. And so from an actual, the first 12 months perspective, it was actually, you know, we had to make a lot of changes and a lot of sacrifices to start the business. And we were told by our mentors, you're not going to make any money for 18 months. And I think that was pretty confronting. It was like, no, you're going to have to pour your, resources into all of these, all of the technology aspects and the things that you need to get your business up to scratch. If you want to, you know, so-called bootleg it and you've got to invest in it yourself, you've got to put up your own capital. You not you need to retain profits to drive investment for you know to hire staff. And so it was really confronting for that first sort of 12 to 18 months that we weren't going to be making really any money at all. And um, but I think the great thing was that every month we saw progress and uh that was that was really that was what was really fantastic and we had a lot of fun like we we started in a little small office in rockdale in sydney and yeah we probably had a bit too much fun that first year but it was it was we had a lot of fun
1: and you've continued on with that growth um and success um growing 91% last financial year doing nearly 24 million in annual revenue becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in australia so so what was the the driver behind that rapid growth obviously going from zero to you know, nearly twenty-five million um, is a huge effort um, that a lot of businesses never ever get to. So, do that in a few years. Sort of, what
0: what drove that that growth and what was it like? You know, then managing that that sort of rapid growth. I think we, I think our sort of we had a really good start. Like we like we had a really good start to the business pre pre COVID, if you like pre twenty twenty. We went from sort of four million in our first year. To then I think even then a couple of years later we hit nearly seven and a half. So we had a we had a really good start. We won a lot of customers. Um, I think we nearly hit 100 customers pre-COVID. So we we were in a good space before COVID. I think the thing that really changed everything with COVID was if you look at 80% of the time in the freight world, everything ticks along normally and schedule reliability is normal. There's not really an incentive to, to really change. And I think what happened was the decision matrix for basically driving decisions to switch freight forwarders or to switch freight and supply chain service providers was really only ever two things. It was either custom service and price. And I think what happened with COVID when schedule reliability dropped to 30%, it then became about more than that. And we've been telling everybody, hey, we've got all of this great automation within our tech platform within the business. It creates, you know, much more individualized service and we provide all these great, amazing digital tools and, tech- and, and uh, real-time data sharing technologies. And people don't really care when schedule reliability is so high. And so what really happened was when COVID, the market just played into our hands and we were ready for really, we didn't realize it at the time we were scared like everybody else. But really, the, when I look back on it, the market played into our hands and we went from sort of having, a. in the last 18 months, we've gone from having 100 customers to over 200. I think 80% of our growth has been from new business. The other 20% is probably freight rates. Um, but the majority of our growth is all new business and retaining new business. So... We've we've been quite fortunate. The the good thing is is that the decisions that companies are making now for us, price has almost kind of become. Even though freight rates are so high, price is actually the third. A freight wave a freight wave survey actually looked at this. A third the third most important decision is uh, is the cheapest price. Second is cutting edge tech and digital tools. And number one is actually individualized service. So we know that we're hitting those first two really really well. And we know that we we can be competitive on price. But it, that all of that entire decision-making matrix, I think, has flipped on its head since COVID.
1: Yeah. So, and you, when you're working at Lion, actually experienced, like I said, those um, edge case, unreliability unre- issues. So you had a lot of empathy, I suppose, again, pre-COVID when it, most of the times things work. When they don't, you saw how painful it was. And that, I understand, is part of what drove that sort of tech element and service element of the business. Is that right?
0: yeah I think so. And I think the tech to, to your point, I think before I started before we started the business, I think my business partner had a, a lot more examples than what I did um, in terms of uh, in terms of obviously the customer case studies, but sitting on the other side of the desk, having that one source of truth and being able to make very quick decisions, I think it's a people and a technology issue. I don't think it's just can be solved with with tech. I think it has to be somebody that knows your business, understands your business can help you make those decisions at the right time. And that's the one thing I think we have done. Well, since COVID, it's not foolproof at all. Um, But the one thing that we know is, is that if we're getting a lot more of our customers' data earlier and we're engaging their supply chain earlier, typically for most of those businesses, they're running almost just purely transit times almost 20% more efficient than the companies that don't decide to work with us in a certain way or provide that data early or get access to our digital real-time tech tools. So, we found that by working with us in a certain way, we know we can we can outperform the market a little bit. Um, and, it you know, even saving four or five days, it doesn't sound like a like a lot, but it actually means a lot in, in the water supply chain. So, yeah, I think, though, it's a combination of that tech and people components.
1: And your business partner is already in the space, very experienced in the, the freight logistics sort of area. Yeah. Did he try and implement tech in those businesses, and they didn't want to? Like you said, they're just very old-fashioned. Was it a mindset, a leadership thing? Again, they were just racing to the bottom on price. Why was he not able to innovate in the environment that he was in? Like for you, it was a new sort of type of business and role. But but for him, already being in the
0: space, what really pushed him to to leave his role? Um, I think he. I think he probably always felt like he could. You know, he had a lot of experience and what he learned. I think there's still. I think a lot of the businesses he worked for are still great businesses. Um, But I think it's no secret, right? You look at DHL, they spent 500 million euros on a system that didn't work. And then all of a sudden they've gone to WiseTech. So there's something in, and I don't think it's just, I think there's a learning here, not just for freight forwarding companies, but a range of different businesses. I think you have to know what your core competency is and what you're good at. And we're freight forwarders. We are not software developers. We're not software companies. And technology can become stagnant and, and stale within 12 to 18 months. So we, we definitely, um, we knew our position and we knew what, what we needed to be. And I think probably Chris probably felt like, you know, he could start, when you start with a blank canvas, you have a lot of advantages. You, you can, you know, and we're in a position now whereby we want to still maintain that culture and that focus now that we're becoming a bigger business um but yeah I don't think it was necessarily about that he couldn't get it done within the other businesses I think it was more that he felt like you know with a blank canvas starting afresh I I feel like I can really execute this and you know and and he and he certainly did
1: and coming from such an insights and analytics sort of background yourself were you surprised how little a lot of freight companies had in terms of data and insights and analytics um, that you you know purpose and built from um, day one into your sort of business, um, but being new to the industry, that surprised you? How little sort of data was captured and um, information? I think it
0: was more the timing of it and when, and and I think that the challenging part for supply chain that was different for me was it was being in a previous role, it's easy to get cold scan data into your system and see what's going on. And with us, it's quite challenging within the supply chain because you've got you know everything from the origin of the goods location to the delivery, there are so many different parties involved and there are so many different data sets that having really good technology providers that can get you that data in the system earlier and using multiple different technology providers and then customising it in your own, own way, I, I think is critical because there's no... Unfortunately, there's not a silver bullet in supply chain that can just pull everything together. And for me, it's always about the so what with data. It's like, okay, fine, you've got this information, but then how what, what's the executional element? What, what do you then do on a day-to-day tactical level basis in terms of how you engage with your customers, what information you're giving them, and how do you improve those those decisions? And that's the one thing I think that this industry's got an abundance, that I think is really good, talented people that if you put the right tools in their hands they can make they can make really good decisions with with supply chains and we we've started to we have started to see more and more of that so i don't think it did surprise me but i i i think that it's not as it's not a it's not a silver lining in supply chain it is a much more complex um problem to solve and that's why there's been obviously a lot of money venture capital and private equity thrown into into supply chain but yeah i i i'm not surprised by um by the ability with the people within within the industry that if they have the right tools at hand to to help solve problems. And we we have seen that.
1: And you mentioned COVID, like you were sort of positioned and then COVID came and it just amplified all all the things you had already been talking about. But even in the first year, you're still growing very quickly. What what was sort of Was it just finding like-minded clients who are already frustrated who were getting bad service? Was it, you know, your network? How did you sort of get that initial growth before, like, COVID opened everyone's eyes to the, like you said, the importance of the the
0: reliability and visibility
1: and things like that?
0: I think a lot of the pitch at the beginning was very much about that individualized attention. And then we would pitch to them our technology and what we were doing with our workflow automation, how it, you know, helps free up our our people's time to then be more invested to solve problems, and hey, we've got these cool tools we can share with you. Um, so I think the people there were people that were that were interested clearly pre-COVID, but then all of a sudden, then I think it become more of a, I think it become more of a necessity. I think post-COVID, and you know, I think it goes back to what I said before. I think when things are ticking along and things are not, you know, really changing a you know, hell of a lot. You know, you've got you're breaking down twenty five year. 30-year business relationships. I mean, one of the biggest renewable um, importers in the country that we were working with was working with a multinational for 30 years, and we have been speaking to them for four years before COVID. And it took COVID and then a phone call to us basically when saying we can't get a hold of anybody at this business for the last four days. We don't know what's happening with our deliveries. We need you to take everything over from now. And that was the end of a 30-year business relationship just mm. over the fact that they they didn't people didn't have the right tools, they weren't based in the cloud, they didn't, you know, weren't providing the right information and documentation at the right times. And and so I think it's become more of a necessity now than than what it was pre-COVID.
1: But it shows, even though it sounds like there's some tech challenges, just that uh, lack of responsiveness to not call back a major customer can undo thirty years of good work. Because when you're stressed and you just want someone to, to talk and say we hear you, we're on it, and they don't. Like you said, and you're already talking to them, but but it, it's amazing what can sort of be the straw that breaks the uh, the camel's back.
0: Yeah, and if you, I mean, if you ha- if you're having to call people through a landline, and that person's locked at home in their in their mm. house and they've not got a laptop to basically be able to access, and they have to go through a VPN to access. You know, you know their, their files and their drives to be able to run off their software, you know, it, it become, I, as I said, I think for a lot of these businesses that were very big pre-COVID, the, 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 the need or requirement to change was very, and for the, a lot of those businesses, very big. So it's very tough to move them very quickly.
1: So, so a lot of freight companies um, aren't known for or famous, like you said, for their technology, but also not for their marketing and, and their differentiation and brand and things like that, except the big ones, people sell their trucks on the highway. Were there certain aspects of your marketing bra- background that you think sort of also helped you get faster sort of cut through? In um, no, we
0: had, we, we, no, we had no money at the beginning. <laughs> so my my, uh, my director, who is uh, very much uh, got as uh, much more financial and operational focus than me, uh, we were very limited, but that being said, I think it gets you become a bit resourceful about how you spend your money. And you know, we've tried to be quite, um, I guess, focused um, around investing more so in the technology than the branding. And I think that we did catch up. We relaunched our our brand and and uh, a new website at the beginning of the year, which I think is more in keeping with probably the type of business that we are. Um, but really, our core focus was always investing in a lot of the automation within within our existing platforms and our customer interfacing technologies beforehand. And we felt like the product would speak for itself. And then now it is all about for us about driving awareness because, you know, for all the growth of the business, you know, for us to sort of even crack a 1% market share, we have to be a 100 million turnover business. So it's a massive market. There's 90,000 importers and exporters in Australia and we've got 200 of them as customers. So we've got... A long way to go, but I I think an element of it is also a lot of organic growth that you get from you know working with good customers, and we've got about a ninety plus percent retention rate. So we know if we focus on the right things, there's a lot of organic marketing growth that we'll get from it. Um, but then there's other things that you know as the business does grow that we can we can look to sort of invest more in in the marketing space and and getting our business out there.
1: And, and you mentioned yourself, uh, neither yourself nor your business partner uh, tech you know base like obviously you've worked with data and numbers and business and you've got a good understanding of the the space but so how did you manage the building of this tech was it you know through a third party hired staff and you know who were technical and you essentially give them the business case and process and they turn that into a usable application is it a mix of off-the-shelf products that you've again customized for your use cases how have you managed this being quite a tech focused business without
0: being sort of technical yourselves I think the one thing that we definitely have is we've used a range of sort of third parties and and uh, sort of consultants that really sort of come in and understand that. And, and then also as the business has grown, we've got sort of, uh, you know, a multiple uh, internal people that work at sort of an ongoing project. So one of our sort of core company objectives and goals, which hasn't changed since we started the business, is around technological and digital transformation. And, and Chris, who is our uh, – and Chris, obviously, who's the other – you know co-founder and director of the business he steered that project you know quite aggressively since we started the business which involves us working with a range of different off the shelf products that we know that we can customize to a certain level and that's allowed us to sort of achieve you know really high levels of automation within within our business relative to our competitors and you know we work no secret we work with companies like wise tech um, and we've got our own digital platform that we've got in collaboration with a company called logic board so we've we've got a, some really fantastic tools at hand but it's more about how we use them and how we customize them that enables us to be a real tech focused business and that and it's more a tech enabled business more than anything else and you know it's not our proprietary di- information or our proprietary uh, Technology, because if it was, we'd be required to spend hundreds of millions of dollars for it to be, you know, competitive for us to go up head to head with some of the biggest digital forwarders in the world, as well as some, you know, big multinational freight forwarders. So we've got companies that are investing billions of dollars in in the products that we use, but we need to invest in the people behind it to get the executional requirements that we need.
1: Yeah. Have you found, though, starting as a tech-first sort of business has meant you don't have the legacy sort of baggage of a bigger business that helped you, like I said, sort of start from day one with the tech and implement it versus trying to, like I said, get a giant, like a DHL-sized business or, like I said, a business very, you know, analog into a digital world?
0: Yeah, I think it does help with some of the blank canvas, but I, I, I think... Um, the 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 one thing that if you speak to a lot of a lot of the consultants that we work with and even the people internally, the thing that actually keeps it moving in the right direction is really the culture of the business. So change management, and if you like, is a key word through um, through a lot of big multinationals around how you have to pivot and move with technology. I think the one thing that as we've grown the business, and you know we're hoping you know we'll probably go from twenty five to maybe you know fifty people over the next couple of years the one thing that we don't want to lose is that 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 culture that's wanting to you know continuously improve what we what we already have It's not a light switch you flick on and off it's something that has to be ongoing and consistent within the team and within the within the business so that's probably more the challenging part is actually how do you then and you know create that environment and that culture which fosters a lot of that really you know positive energy and behavior behind a, a one of the core business objectives so um, it's yeah. If we focus on the culture, believe it or not, that actually fo- that actually helps us with a lot of the tech, the tech, the tech execution.
1: Yeah, well, the best tech with the wrong people isn't going to go anywhere. So you're right, that attitude and culture definitely drives it. Um, are, are there emerging technologies that you're looking at with a lot of interest that aren't yet ready to, you know, plug into your business and roll out to your customers? But but but, are sort of, you know, on the horizon. I mean, some people talk about sort of a lot of blockchain stuff with supply chains. And are, are there other that and or other technologies that you're very excited for, but again, are a little bit far away from actually
0: being, you know, ready to, to go. Look, we've tried. We've tried things like artificial intelligence and things that we still we we still are trying AI um, in, in our business. Um, I, I, how scalable and ready that is to scale now is is probably it's probably not not quite ready. Even if it is in terms of just data processing, um, right now it's not a hundred percent there. Um, but those are the type of things AI, which I think are going to have massive. Um, that I you know when we started the business five six years ago, that's what we thought would have real massive positive, I think, uh, influence within the industry that if we can take a lot of the menial um, data entry tasks away from people, which we, we largely have done to a certain degree to enter data twice and things like that. But that's the stuff that gets quite exciting then because then you've effectively removed the whole operational process and then you're focusing really on then people, the people problem around how do you redeploy operational staff that really all they've done for the last 20, 30 years is enter data and move something from A to A to Z. And that's the, the thing that gets me excited about, you know, one is a real, I, I see it more as an opportunity because we can really upskill and redeploy those, those staff to say, you've got all this fantastic knowledge around how freight moves around the world. Now I'm going to put you in front of a customer. Now I'm going to give you a bunch of tools to actually really spend time with them on how do you actually find improvements within your supply chain. And you know, that that's the next step for me that gets quite exciting um, is how AI is going to be implemented and how that and how that will get integrated within our current platform. So I don't know the timing on it, but the degree to which it does have an impact will, will be interesting over the next few years.
1: And is there a specific value in that case that the AI or the machine learning is sort of adding? Because there's like an API or a centralized ERP that sort of pushes data through a system and connects it. Is it some systems just don't talk to each other? Is it manual intervention? Are there certain you know decision points that still need at this point a manual a, a human to sort of you know check? Or, or what's the biggest bottleneck to having something like that um, well, fully can-
0: operational? I think it's more to do with the actual supply chain right now. I think that's the biggest issue is that if you actually look at how disrupted everything is, the exception level of involvement is actually quite high, and it does need to be quite high. So even though the data entry components are there, we could effectively automate out of the 16 different workflow tasks that we have in our business. You could theoretically you know, automate probably 70 to 80% of them. We already automate a lot of them anyway. But the problem is it needs that manual level of involvement because of the disruption. So we, we're trying to, we can have AI do a lot of the work, but it, for example, with documentation requirements, a lot of documents, depending on where you get them from which part of the world are not very accurate and they're all over the place. So the AI's ability to actually read documents with consistency is not as high as probably what it needs to be, because then you have to get involved. You have to then manually update and there's a quality assurance process that becomes quite laborious. And then all of a sudden, all the efficiencies you've saved have fallen into the wayside. So If we do need manual intervention right now, it needs to be for the customer and it needs to be more and it needs to be customer focused.
1: Hmm. And so if we zoom out a little bit from the freight logistics sort of world, um, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? What do you see a lot of entrepreneurs doing, Australian entrepreneurs doing well? And then where do you see maybe
0: room for further improvement? Yeah, I don't know how qualified I am to to answer this, this sort of question, but I think, um, the the one thing i i think the tech council for example in in australia that that started i forget when it was was it last year or the year before um during covid i think that's a really positive thing because of, uh, you know obviously kind of an industry body that advocates for everything sort of tech and entrepreneur and i know there's a lot of sort of different sort of business clubs and associations that have started up and done well during covid and really supported the sort of a the australian sort of a small business community and you know i mean what is it now i think over 90% of our our businesses in Australia are small businesses, so you know, and we contribute what to a third of the GDP and two thirds of jobs, or something like that. So it's you know, on, entrepreneurs or small businesses really contribute a lot to, to the Australian economy. I think that I think there definitely are things that we can we can sort of learn from overseas. There was actually a report I was reading in preparation for this actually on on uh, the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor, which I think is the biggest study in the world done by Babson College in, in Massachusetts, and they've got 22 years of data from pretty much all the major countries in the world and we're not a part of it. <laughs> so I'd love to see us become a part of something like were that. Were we not in the top or you just our data? we don't even participate in the survey as a country. So oh, you look well. at all the, all the massive sort of level A, what they call level A economies in the world, we're pretty much one of the only ones that aren't in it. So I'd like to think that, you know, and that gives it what they call an NCI index that basically looks at you know how governments and you know people respond to entrepreneurship and encourage entrepreneurship. So I'd like to see more of that. I'd love to see, you know, countries like in Holland where they they have fast tracked immigration processes for skilled workers, specifically for the start for startups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have I think it is a five percent sort of a corporate tax rate for R and D and innovation. They have a fifty percent tax allowance for brand new businesses that encourages it. So and I think that that's one of the key learnings I took out of the report was a lot of people don't probably start because they're concerned about them what you know what happens if I fail and if government can sort of support and encourage that entrepreneurship even at the grassroots level with education I think there's a lot of really good things that we can we can sort of certainly be doing and I think the tech council is a really really good starting point with that type of stuff
1: hmm. and so looking back again having done a number of different things there in your career what, what advice would you give someone who's 18 or 20 you know maybe they're interested in business they're not sure what they want to do they're they're at that you know post high school post university sort of phase um again uh what would you sort of say reflecting back on your own journey
0: um i i th- I think you've you've got to focus on what you're re- what you're re- you're definitely interested in what you seem passionate you just need to get started with something and i think even if the one thing i advise for sort of maybe sort of you know, there's a lot of people who want to go and start their own business and be entrepreneurs, which is which is great. But I think you get a lot from learning from really great operators and great businesses. And if you're around really good people, um, you can sort of learn what you and you can sort of find your way in terms of what you're actually quite good at. And, you know, I was very fortunate as well and to have a, a really good sort of mentor um, that I work for at, at Lion. And um, that, that added a huge amount of value to, to what I did and sort of stretched me as well sort of beyond my insights world, if you like, and sale, and move into more to sort of the sales and marketing side of things. And I, I, I definitely would recommend that you can, you know, as you do get more experience, you diversify your skill set and get out of your comfort zone because people do tend to sort of go sort of down a journey with their career and it's, you know, if it's accounting or finance, they'll stay within accounting and finance. But you know, some of the best salespeople I've actually seen have come with CPAs and accounting backgrounds, and so I, I would strongly recommend that you you pick something, but then you do diversify later on. And um, I think it's I think entrepreneurs as well. I think if you are trying to get in and start a business, go and get experience first, and work for somebody else, and make mistakes for somebody else before you do your own thing.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned your mentor at Lion. Was there something in particular that they directed you like a strength, a weakness, they highlighted for you an opportunity they created for you?
0: Um, I think I, I think it was more the the informal sort of conversations and getting to see him from afar. His, I don't mind saying his name was Gordon Trainer, and he was the marketing director, one of the craft marketing directors at Lion. And the one thing I learned a lot from him was just about how you how you how you carry yourself and how you in, how you run a team and engage with sort of senior stakeholders within a business. Um, but then he was really good at working with a with a, a group of people that were really good in certain aspects of their role and bringing a team together and um he was really good he was really good with me and gave it gave me a sort of a lot of extra sort of you know time if I wanted to book in a coffee and and have a chat with him he was he was fantastic he'd give me the time and energy to and I just caught up for a beer with him actually in London when I went over to London for work and had a catch up with him in London as well and I was actually talking to him about some people some people and the unemployment challenges here in Australia we were talking about and he gave me a couple of different ideas as well so it, it's good to if you do, if, if you are fortunate to have somebody that's willing to give you that time, it, it can really help help shape you. But Lion in general was great with their people and culture and very, very individual development focus as well as how you contribute to the overarching sort of core company objectives. They were very, very good with that.
1: And and you mentioned as well, so yeah, learning um not sort of rushing which I think some people do you know 18 or 20 they think well you know time is precious not realizing how much time they have but also like you said the lessons you can learn in a big very sophisticated and successful um high-scale sort of business were there other lessons that you've really sort of reflected on when you you know in these different organizations or even the brands or clients you're working with you sort of took with you so to speak and um put into your business having seen what these very big successful companies do
0: the first thing I said to to Gordy when I uh, Gordon when I left the when I left line was I want to take the entire people and culture template and just implement it within within NeoLink and um, if NeoLink would you know would obviously grow to the size that it would so I, I took a lot of the people and culture learnings just around um, how you know putting together individualized development plan templates for the people and because we're a fast scaling business which is great there's actually a lot of opportunity for people that are coming in here. Um, and we've we've met, i've would like to think i've managed to sort of create a, a bit of a mini people and culture business that's similar and reflects similarly to the line sort of core values and behaviours but then actually walks the walk and talks the talk around developing our staff and that goes from our general management to our team supervisors they they really focus on the people within their team and their purview and we really give that time and energy into the, developing our staff and and i think that if anything it's funny you actually speak to chris the other director, he'll tell you it's not our tech that's our competitive advantage at all. He'll tell you straight away it's the people and culture, which I think if it, when we first started the business, I said to him that that would probably be our competitive advantage, and he actually probably didn't believe me. And I think now five six years down the line, that it's probably been the most important thing I've I've taken away from my career of working at Lion is actually taking that and implementing something on a smaller scale here. And how
1: do the staff sort of react to that? I imagine some might have had good, like I said, customised professional development pathways in their other roles, but I imagine some have never actually had that environment um, as an employee. Um, What's the response? Are they surprised? Do they enjoy it? Is it sort of just a bit of a new thing for people to actually be asked, you know, what do you want and how are we going to get you there and and all those sort of trainings or opportunities?
0: I think the first thing that surprised me, to be honest with you, quite a lot is that, our industry does a really bad job of this, and I think it. And we we don't do it well as an industry is around how we attract and bring people into the industry and how we develop their pathways. There are some businesses that do do it well, um, but broadly on average, it, 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 we do lose a lot of good people. And I think if we're going to be serious about attracting people into logistics and supply chain, I think you don't have a choice but to really think about you know how we're we going to you know bring you in. Where are you going to be in five to ten years' time? What's your skill set going to look like? How are we going to invest and develop you? And that that's the what that's the thing that I think does surprise a lot of the people that are either coming from within the industry to us, but then from people that are actually coming for me to graduate, you know, high-level graduate positions at university, that's almost just expected. So if you, if when we sit down and we talk to people about that, they're like, great, okay, so you have a career plan and a career, okay, great, fantastic. Yeah, okay, this could be an option for me. Not, to, And it's more often than not, it's not just about the salary structure or remuneration. It's actually, okay, well, this is what the career plan looks like. And these are the different options that you'll have with us as the business continues to grow. And so people respond really well, I think, you know, getting... and. It does sort of get it does give people a um it's sort of a commitment to themselves. when they put something down on paper and they put a development plan in place when it's with a team leader or a supervisor throughout the course of the year, it's a commitment from them to us and us to them that if we're not giving them what they need in terms of if we've got a somebody in operations who wants to become a customs broker or goes into sales, what are the different things that we're going to have to do to get you there? What are the different you know what other parts we need to expose you to the business to be able to, maybe demonstrate those capabilities or the skill set gap. So we've it holds everybody accountable.
1: And has anything come up in running those for your staff um, that surprised you like, oh well, wow, people really want to do a client-facing role. They want to run the PL for a business unit, or they want the opportunity to, you know, open a new location or a new branch, or, or are there any particular um development goals, I guess, that were not typical maybe of what you were expecting before you had those
0: chats? Um, I, I think largely for everybody, the one thing we've been very honest with, I think, up front within even in the interview process is we've almost kind of nutted out what the development plan is in the interview process. So actually, I think that's one of the strengths is, is that there haven't really been any surprises of the people that are coming in um, into the business. We kind of actually cover off a lot of that, to be honest, um, before they even start. So there's not actually really that many surprises when people come into the, into the business and their first development plan meeting is three months in and they finally got their feet under the desk. We things and what we do expect though is things can change and things mm-hmm. evolve and then we might have somebody that all of a sudden turns around and says you know I'm actually quite happy being in this role I've actually got you know I'm, I'm, I've am i just got the supervisor role I'm, I'm going to start a you know whatever it's going to be I'm going to you know not going to go any further I don't want to be a GM level role I'm going to have a family or whatever I don't I don't want that level of responsibility and that that happens and it's a, and it's a conversation that's very upfront and transparent and you know, but we're. I think the good thing with us and the team is, with all the guys out there, is that they they have a lot of those early. They have those conversations really in the interview process, and that's actually what we found has been key. And it, we we're very honest, very transparent with people during the interview process that it might not be the uh, exactly the right place for everybody and if it isn't that then then it's you know that that is and we walk away from it but the retention rate's been high and you know we've just got on um, the great places to work list as well which is fantastic and, and I think that a lot of that is driven by that that those upfront conversations mm. and
1: so if we look to the future say five to ten years for narrowlink, do you have sort of medium term goals or a vision or a direction that you want to take the business like you've already mentioned the tech treating people well um, you know, uh, handling providing really high level service. Are there any other sort of bigger, you know, national expansion, international expansion? Um, like you said, some of those emerging technologies that are really exciting you for the medium term.
0: I think the one thing that we definitely there's a huge domestic opportunity in our in, in Australia for us with the fact that we've only got you know um, you know 200 out of 90,000 importers and exporters that are that are working with us. So we've definitely got a domestic focus, I would say, over the course of the next, over the next sort of three to five years um, to grow and scale the business. And you know, we've, you know, we've we've had other opportunities potentially looking at investment to go overseas and do these things. But I think that really we've got an opportunity here in our, in our, in our back garden to, you know, work with Australian importers and exporters. And we believe that we can, you know, help improve those supply chains, make them more efficient, make them more sustainable. And so we we do feel like we're the, the, the focus has to be here over the next, you know, five years. The next 10 years, yes, there's definitely opportunity for us to expand into, you know, warehousing, distribution, other parts of the country, that we you know, where we can have offices or whether that's, you know, uh, potentially launching into other key markets for us which are in Europe or in North America. Those things are definitely on the cards, but, you know, we don't want to, you know, bite off more than we can chew at the moment. We've got enough to worry about. Excellent. And any final words or thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? No, I thought it was fantastic, mate. I appreciate the the chat. I I love what you're doing, mate. So awesome. Excellent. Thanks so much, Sean. Cheers, Derek. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.